And if you would, open up your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'll wait for you. And we'll read verse 35. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus, we read, Jesus said unto them, I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jesus also repeats that he's the bread of life in verse 48. And in verse 51, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, and I will give, which I will give for the life of the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says these several times that he is the bread or the bread of life. Uh, We would call this a metaphor, and Jesus picks these metaphors very carefully. And bread is a very special thing in the history of the world. It's really an amazing thing. Uh, The first child that was born in the Bible, Cain, the Bible says that he became a tiller of the ground. And we think of a farmers who farm the fields as growing a lot of things nowadays, but the first thing that was really cultivated, according to historians and archaeologists and anthropologists and so on, was grain. And Cain was most likely a grower of grain, a grain farmer from which we would get bread. And anthropologists tell us that when people began to plant grain on a large scale, and till the ground, rather than move around and hunt and gather what uh, edible things they could that were growing in the wild, that it actually brought about civilization. Wherever people tilled the ground and grew grain, it brought about civilization. Because bread brought about the moving of food to the community rather than the community moving about in order to find the food. The food was brought to the community instead of the community to the food. When the food was brought to the community and when bread was, you might say, invented and people began to eat bread, all of a sudden... The community could be stationary. It could grow in size. People could help each other more. There was power in the city, power to defend, power to help one another, power to live together in, uh, in cities, and civilization was brought about. And so we could, in a way, we could say that bread brought about civilization in the world. And it's not really much of a stretch. Now, in the Gospel of John, there aren't very many parables as there are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus, uh, John didn't choose to record 
many of Jesus' parables like the other three gospel writers did. More often, the writer John remembered one of the metaphors that Jesus used, especially in one of his I am statements, where Jesus says, I am. And in this case, he says, I am the bread of life. Uh, In the parables, they are something more like an allegory, which has a story element to them. The parables have story elements to them. You might say a plot. Things happen in in the parables. A metaphor is a single comparison. And most often in the Gospel of John, these comparisons are when Jesus says, I am, and then you could fill in the blank, bread, the bread of life. And nothing in our modern existence really compares to bread in the days of the Bible. Bread meant sustenance. You ate bread every day. Now, maybe you eat bread every day. But you, you do that because you choose to. You have a lot of things that you can eat. In the Bible days, you had to eat bread every day. It was your uh, sustaining food. It was your, your sustenance. And it was your main food, and it was also the food that you, it might be your only food for many days in a row. Bread, bread, bread. Grain was the staple of life. And it was rather amazing when people learned how to uh, leaven the bread, which made it so much lighter and more pleasurable, tender, more digestible. Um, And the grains were the first cultivated plants. Now, now for us, bread is nice. You know, we, we, how many of you like bread? You like to have bread at your meal? Um, In my grandma and grandpa's home, who were, uh, they were immigrants from Italy, there was always bread with every meal. Um, Now it's nice. It's nice to have bread. At restaurants, many restaurants, they bring you some bread, a little basket of bread, as soon as you sit down. And at the restaurants, when it's like that, it's kind of a reminder of the ancient meaning of bread. Bread was like life. We have a a famous novel, Les Miserables, where we sympathize with the suffering of the main character, Jean Valjean. He steals bread when he's a young man because his family is poor and they have nothing to eat and they're starving and he's, you know, his back up is, is up against the wall in poverty and so he steals bread and as a result of stealing this bread, he goes to prison. He winds up uh, in prison for 19 years if memory serves right. And we sympathize with him because he was just trying to feed his starving family. Bread, to us, might mean comfort. It might mean fellowship. It might mean hospitality. It might, bread might be a way to express some affection 
I always love to receive a loaf of bread from Brother Bill Schenk when he makes it once or twice a year, this beautiful braided egg bread. Swiss bread, I think you call it, right, Brother, Brother Bill? And it, it is just an, an honor to receive that bread. In the Bible days, I'm sure it meant all of those things, but it meant more than that. It meant life. It meant sustenance. Suppose Jesus would, would have been uh, destined to come to the earth in the 21st century instead of in the first century. Suppose he came, became flesh and came to save our souls in the 21st century, in the year 2023. What could he say? I am, you know, what could he fill in the blank? I'm the bread of life. What would he say? I am your cell phone. I don't know. I don't think that would cut it, would it? That, that would be sort of cheap. I am your internet connection. I am your electricity. Hmm, that would come a little closer. I mean, if we didn't have electricity, that would really change the quality of our lives. But could we say we'll die without it? Maybe. Maybe. It, it does, electricity does enable, to, enable us to live in a lot of places in the world where we probably wouldn't be able to live without it. Like Syracuse, New York. <laughs> I am your car. 21st century. I am your automobile. I am that certain pair of kicks, that certain pair of sneakers, that certain pair of shoes. I am your career path, your job. What would Jesus say in the 21st century in America if he, if he had been called to come here and express himself to us in terms that would mean sustenance? life. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Here's another one of these I am statements by Jesus and a metaphor. He says, then, uh, 8.12 says, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus also says he's the light of the world in John 9, 5 and in John 12, 46. So Jesus was repeating this concept. He does not say in the Gospel of John, I am your jewelry. I am your pillow. I am your piece of art on the wall. I am your frill. I am your decoration. I am your recreation. I am your video game. I am your jet ski. I am your easy chair. I am your television. He says, I am, your, I am the light of the world. Light. You know what you're doing. You know what you you know where you are because of Jesus. 
sort of like the light. You recognize people in the light. You know, I, I've met people in dark alleys, dark rooms, dark hallways, and strained. I want to see their faces. I want to see where they're at. I want to see if they represent to me a friend or a foe. I want to see, even if I know who it is. Sometimes, you know, you could just see a silhouette by the way somebody walks. People tell me this about myself all the time. Oh, Brother Brian, we could tell you a mile away just by the way you walk. I don't know, what what do you want me to say? Okay. But there's something else besides telling just who it is. Wouldn't you like to know something about their frame of mind? Wouldn't you like to know something about how they're doing today? How are you doing today? Well, you need light for that. You see mistakes in the light. You see accomplishments in the light. Accomplishments or, on the other side, mistakes. They need light. You need light to identify them. I've done quite a bit of carpentry in my lifetime. Uh, As a joke, I like to say, I do my best work in the dark. Because you can't see my mistakes in the dark. But the truth is, if I'm going to work in a workshop... The first concern for me is getting a lot of light in there. You need a lot of light to do good work. Jesus is the light, is our light, the the light of life. The dark is lonely. The dark is secretive. The dark hides. Evil and danger lurk in the dark. A lot of crimes are committed in the dark. A lot of crime is stopped simply by putting up a light pole. Simply by shining light on a space, you can bring a lot of safety to that space. Am I telling you the truth? The dark makes us blind, but Jesus says, I am the light of life. So he says, I'm bread, I'm drink, I'm light. He's not saying, I'm jewelry, I'm a pillow, I'm a trinket, I'm a decoration. He's going for the big stuff. He's going for the essentials of life. Amen? Go to John chapter 10, verse 11. Here's another one. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He says this also in verse 7 and verse 9. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, The thief cometh not for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He also talks about how he's the door. And he's actually, it's sort of a double metaphor when he says, I'm the door, because when he says, I'm the door, he's also referring to a, uh, a shepherd. Because the, the sheep were kept in a fold, like a corral, 
which is made of stone walls and might be uh, make use of branches, tree branches, all intertwined to each other, basically a fence. And thorny branches were often used to top the stone walls or to, to make the whole corral out of thorny branches because the thorny branches would not only keep the sheep in, but it would also keep the predators out. But of course, they needed a gate in the corral or the sheepfold, and the shepherd would often sit right in the gate, even at night, lay down and sleep in the gate. And in that way, the shepherd was the door. John picked up on Jesus' comparison of himself to these essentials. Here Christ adds an element that some people get confused about, and when they get confused about this, they actually get sick. It really hurts them. And that is this. We need to be, we human beings need to be part of a group. We need to be part of a flock. Uh, As Brother Don has shared with us in teaching us about shepherds and sheep and so on, there, there just is no such thing as a lone sheep. Sheep do not live alone. For a sheep to be alone is for a sheep to be dead. It's going to kill, a sheep is going to find itself dead if it's alone. We need a shepherd. A shepherd is essential for us. We need Jesus to be our good shepherd. We need guidance. We need protection. We need a leader who keeps us together. It's essential to our, it's as essential to our lives as bread. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the drink. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the good shepherd. You can even be here this morning in this room, but not be part of the group. Stand yourself apart. Stand yourself uh, in your mind and in your heart. Separate yourself from the group and stand alone. I challenge you to rethink that. Instead, to enter the group, to yield to grouping, to yield to being shepherded by the good shepherd Jesus. This is an essential that John heard in the teachings of Jesus. I'm bread. It's an essential. Sustenance. Especially in the Bible days. You you didn't live without it. I'm drink. I'm light. I'm the good shepherd. These are the essentials to human prosperity, comfort, salvation, human future, goodness in life. These are the essentials. Loneliness and going it alone are not healthy for us. They're not good for us to go it alone. You can think, I do pretty good by myself. I make pretty good shots, could call pretty good shots by myself. I make good decisions by myself. I've done all right for myself. I'm going to tell you, you're, you're fooling yourself. We need each other. 
We need to be part of the flock. It is God's design to have a flock, a church, a group, a congregation, a congregation. And it's going to be, from time to time, humbling for us. It's going to be, from time to time, it's going to stretch us, it's going to challenge us. But it's actually very healthy for us to have social contacts and communications and togetherness. And when these things, when we try to search for these things and substitute online connections, screen connections, screen socialization, when we try to substitute online long-distance communications, it does havoc on our mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual health. We have a mental health epidemic going on in our nation right now, and it is largely exploding since the uh, iPhone came out. Going it alone is not healthy for the human being. We need the real personal friendship, togetherness, and community. We need to experience the humbleness and surrender to the group. It is essential to our health as humans to yield up some of our personal freedom to the good of the bigger concern. I'm not talking about making this on a national scale. I'm not talking about making this submission to the good of the group on a world scale. I'll I'll tell you right now, I don't believe that God is... God is pleased when we submit our personal will and freedom to world scale. God wanted wanted human beings to spread across the face of the earth. He wanted them to get in smaller groups than that, where there's accountability, where there's knowledge of who who you're following, who you're leading, who there's accountability one to another, that the group is of a reasonably controlled size. I believe that that is God's way. But it is not God's way for us to simply dismiss membership in the group and go it alone and trust ourselves and not make ourselves vulnerable to other people. It is God's way for us to make ourselves vulnerable to others. And Jesus Christ is our best example of that. Oh, if he didn't make himself vulnerable to others. They nailed his hands and feet to a cross. He came to his own. He cried over Jerusalem. He said, I desired to gather you. Unselfishness, obedience, togetherness, Submission, they're all essential for us. We need these things. As, it's a double-edged sword, no, no doubt about it. We're going to get good out of it, no question. There's a lot of good in our grouping, in our togetherness, in our being a flock. And there's also going to be pains, surrender, hurt, injustices, difficulties. It's going to be challenging at the same time too, but this is actually the way of God. It's his way. 
It's good for us. There's growth there. There's stagnation, loneliness. There's no health in being free, but lonely. The freest, loneliest man in the Bible was a maniac. He was so free, no one could keep him in chains. He lived in tombs. He was insane, antisocial, but totally free. No one could restrain him. Is he a, was he a man to emulate? Was he a man to be jealous of? Oh, I'm jealous of his life. He was so free. He did whatever he wanted to do. Now, he didn't do whatever he wanted to do. He was in bondage to devils. Let's go on to the next one. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These are metaphors too. For a human being to say he's the way, it's a metaphor. A human being is the truth. It's a metaphor also. And these are more essentials. Jesus does, does not compare himself to trinkets decorations, the supplementary things of life. He compares himself to only the essential things of life. He's the way to the Father. He is not simply the way as in the way to live. Don't, mistake, don't make a mistake about this. He's not saying, I am the way to live. Muslims have a way to live too. Mormons have a way to live too. So do atheists. So do artists. So do scientists. So do health nuts. So do exercise nuts. Everybody has their way to live. There are a lot of, a lot of ways to live. Jesus is not saying, I'm the way to live. He's saying, I'm the way to the Father. And there is only one way to the Father. Where do you want to end up? What is your destination? What are you plugging in on your, on your GPS, in your, card, in your car? The destination, the way is created by the destination. And Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. Jesus is talking about the way to a very particular destination. And he is the only way to the Father. He is the truth. No deception, no broken promises, no half-truths, no partial truths, no illusions, no delusions. He is the essential truth, the ultimate truth. We human beings can have a lot of questions. We can say, oh, I've got to know, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? I have a question. I want to know the truth about that. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there a, a disaster like the earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria? So many tens of thousands dying in a disaster like that. 
Why does there have to be crime? Why is there crime like shootings all over the world, uh, more in the United States than any other nation, and happening right here in Syracuse almost every week? Shootings. Shootings downtown, shootings in the street, shootings on the north side, the south side, the east side, shootings in the mall. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there sickness? Why does there have to be sickness? Why does there have to be cancer? We can have lots of big questions. Why is there such a vast, dark, cold space around spaceship Earth? Why, why, why? We can come up with the big questions, but Jesus says he is the truth. He is the essential truth. He's the bread, he's the drink, he's the light, and he's the truth. He's the essential truth. He's the one we need. He's the truth that we need. Let go of your questions and grasp the truth that is essential. He will pull you through the evil that is in this world. He'll pull you through it. He'll satisfy you in the end. You are not going to know goodness, justice, righteousness without him. Let your questions go. Don't set up questions that are going to push God away from you, that are going to push Jesus away from you, because he is the truth. He'll help you. He says, I'm the life as in purpose. When Christianity spread among the poor and the hated, people who had... uh, Christianity spread more, much more so, much more quickly. It still does to this day. It spreads among those who are poor and those who are needy and those who are uh, despised. It, it spreads among those who are discriminated against and those who are looked down against. Yes, uh, some, some people come into to the Lord who are high achievers and so on, but remember what the Apostle Paul said. Look among you. There are not many mighty. There are not many noble. There are not many wise among you. Right? Christianity spread the whole world over, and it spread big time among the poor, the disenfranchised, the despised, people who had nothing to live for, who had no promise in this world, people who had nothing to to look forward to in this world. But when they latched on to the Lord Jesus Christ, they latched on to life, and they latched on to purpose. And these people who had nothing to live for suddenly had something they were willing to die for. They became crazy bold. They became crazy ambitious. They became crazy courageous. Doing anything to spread the gospel wherever they could. Paying any price to hold to the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Burn me at a stake. Take my head off. Throw me in the prison. I will not compromise when it comes to Jesus Christ. I will not recant. These people had nothing to live for before Jesus Christ. And now they're saying, I'm laying my life on the line for Jesus Christ. He is the life. Reach the world. 
They had no vision, and Christ gave them world-sized vision. They've done it. Christians have done it. They've reached the world. They're doing it, according to Wycliffe organization, as of September 2022, all of the Bible has been translated into 724 languages. The New Testament has been translated, the New Testament only, has been translated into an additional, on top of the 724, an additional 1,617 languages. According to Wycliffe, in the year 2023, Bible translation is going on currently, right now, in 2,846 languages in 157 different countries. There are translators on the ground. Translators translating the Bible into the language of indigenous people so they could read the Bible in their own language. Has Jesus Christ given you something to die for? It has been said, I think it was said by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. as well as others, I believe it's been said, that if you do not have something to die for, you do not have something to live for. Jesus Christ said, I'm the life. And when he's your life, you'll be willing to die for it. We can call this theory in America where our lives generally are not, our physical lives are not generally, generally threatened. But it becomes really practical and goes far beyond theory when you consider death to self. Then the call to a Christian becomes very real. Let's go to another one of the essentials Jesus Uh, compares himself to in John chapter 15, verse 1. He says in John 15, 1, I'm the true vine and my father is the husbandman. I would call this, uh, these verses here, 1 through, oh, maybe uh, 7 or 8, actually a parable. I said that the gospel of John doesn't contain too many parables, but I believe that this is, this is one parable where all the elements are symbolic and, and the events themselves are symbolic. It is not explicitly labeled a parallel, but uh, I'm sorry, a parable, but I believe that it is. And I don't believe that Jesus is making the vine, the grapevine, that plant, one of life's essentials. When he says, I'm the bread, I am the bread of life. He's comparing himself to an essential of life, even though bread is not, no longer really essential to us in the same way as it was in Bible days. He says, I'm drink. He says, I'm light. I'm the good shepherd. These are really human essentials 
that Jesus is referring to with these metaphors. In this case, I don't think the grapevine is an essential, but I think what he's pointing out here is the relationship between the grapevine trunk, the thick trunk that comes out of the ground and is attached to the roots. He's comparing the relationship of the trunk to the branches that connect to the trunk. So what he's pointing out is relationship, connection. And that, in fact, is an essential. The connection is the essential. The branch is entirely dependent on the trunk of the vine. The the branch is alive and fruitful because of its essential connection to the trunk. For the branch to be severed from the trunk is for the branch to die. It cannot live without that connection to the trunk. Perhaps this morning on Living Word Live, there are some backsliders listening. I hear from folks in the church that their backslidden children do watch Living Word Live from time to time. I want to tell you, if, if, that, if I'm describing you, we love you. We love you. We want you to come back to Christ. You cannot live in Christ without being connected to him. You cannot live as a human being, let me put it that way, without that connection to the trunk, to Jesus. If you're not serving him and you're living a life of of an unbeliever, even though you, you still believe, you still know, you still fear the second coming of the Lord, you still are concerned about heaven and hell, you're wasting time out there, you're procrastinating out there, I want to tell you, we love you and we want you to make a decision to come back to Jesus. Come back and be connected to him once again. You can be fruitful in life if you're connected to him. He's, he is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. We want to see you come back. Not for our own sakes, although it would be such a pleasure to us. It's so that you could be spiritually alive and fruitful in life. And let's turn to the last one that I'm going to cover this morning in John chapter 7, in verse 37. I've mentioned already, because Jesus says it in John chapter 6, that he's drink. But here he really highlights that. John seven thirty-seven says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And verse 39 says, but this spake he of the Spirit. He says, come to me and drink. Isn't this another essential? Where are we going without hydration? How essential to life is hydration? How essential to life is taking in your liquids, your fluids? We can only function for a very short time without hydration. 
We'll die very, very quickly without hydration. We'll lose our ability to function well. We'll lose our strength. We'll lose our mental capacity. We'll start doing crazy things. We'll start making bad decisions. We'll start fainting, floundering, weakening, unless we remain hydrated. We must drink to go on, to be strong, to function, to be healthy, and to live. And Jesus is saying metaphorically, Come to me and drink. And what he's talking about, it says it right here, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In the natural, we must take in liquids again and again, day after day. It is near to breathing in its importance. It's so essential. And in fact, Jesus draws a connection between our need for drink and the Holy Spirit. When we drink, it's it's describing the Spirit coming into our souls. Just like when you drink, you take liquid into into uh, into your body, you take the Spirit into your person when you drink of the drink that Jesus offers. Then Jesus talks about it being in the in the belly. After you drink it, it's in your belly. In other words, the spirit spreads its beneficial effects through your soul. You take in the spirit. Then the spirit begins to permeate your soul and bring about good effects. And finally, Jesus says, rivers of water will flow forth from you. And this is when the Spirit manifests outwardly. The Spirit comes in, permeates your soul, and then manifests outwardly. The the Spirit regenerates, then permeates, then irrigates. The Spirit goes in, then through, and then out. The Spirit produces salvation, then sanctification, and then service to others. Praise the Lord. Verse 37 says, In the last day, the great day of the feast. It refers to the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast in the fall, right before the Jewish New Year. And there were rituals that expanded greatly from the the dictates of the Word of God, according to the Talmud as time went on, more and more uh, rituals and ceremonies and a lot of hoopla and a lot of uh, pageantry was added to the Feast of Tabernacles that included drinking, water, and also light. Josephus describes this. The Jewish Talmud describes this. For instance, the priests would leave the temple grounds and go down to the Pool of Siloam. It's a couple hundred yards walk downhill from the temple and they would dip a golden pitcher into the pool of Siloam and then carry that water back to the temple. The pool of Siloam is fed by the Kihon Spring which is the city of Jerusalem's ancient and only water source and they would dip dip that into this precious water source in Jerusalem that saw them through so many hard times in the history of that city, which gave them drink when they were hurting, when they were sieged, when they were under attack, when there was 
famine in the land, when there was drought, the Gihon Spring would continue to supply Jerusalem with life-giving and joy-giving water. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would celebrate, God has given us our essentials, our water. What a faithful water source is the Gihon Spring. They would dip the golden pitcher in and carry it the couple hundred yards up the hill. On my last uh, trip to Israel with a, a bus of Living Word brothers and sisters, we were actually able to go to uh, the Gihon Spring where it started and stand, actually stand in the water as we were about to walk the 400 yards through Hezekiah's conduit to the Pool of Siloam. And I remember standing in the water there and all of a sudden the water bubbled up from somewhere near my ankles. It just bubbled up and the water that was below my knees came up and rose up to almost my waist. And I thought, there it is, there it is. The Gihon Spring is still alive and still bubbling up. As they would go up the hill with the pitcher of water, they would sing Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. But I can almost hear on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles frustration in Jesus' voice. Something like this. I offer the true essential. The Gihon Spring is a nice metaphor. It's a nice symbol, but it doesn't truly offer use the wells of salvation. The temple is not your source of salvation. The priesthood is not your source of salvation. I am enough of symbols. Just a few years later, after Jesus pronounced these words and made a cry out like this, Jerusalem would be flattened by the Roman army. The temple would be torn down by a Roman army. The song about the wells of salvation would be silenced. The temple would be gone. Captives and prisoners would be carried off to Rome and other parts of the Roman Empire, and they would no more be able to drink of that old and faithful well, the Gihon Spring. But they would in inherit eternal life if they would accept Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we can so easily get distracted. You can start to think, your house is life. Your job is life. Your money is life. Your bank account. Your friends is life to you. Your hobby. The things you can buy. Your cell phone is life to you. What do you think about this? Maybe having a, a Sabbath one day a week where you just lock your cell phone away in a drawer, forget about it for a whole day. Could you do it? I do it. Are your clothes your life? Your style? Your appearance? Is that life to you? Your health? Is that life to you? I want to tell you this morning, this is not only a salvation message. I pray that God would use it as a salvation message. That's, I, that would be wonderful and nothing would please me more. But it's not simply a salvation message. 
John is writing, the Apostle John, who picked up on Christ comparing himself to all these essentials, bread, drink, light, being part of a flock, water, a way, truth, life, these essentials. John is writing his gospel late in the game, late in the first century. The the church thought that Jesus was going to come again next week. Jesus ascended into heaven. They thought he was going to come again and establish his kingdom on this world maybe next week. If not tomorrow, next week. When it didn't happen next week, they thought, well, surely next month. But the years went by. And then as a few decades went by, Matthew, Mark, and Luke decided we better write the Gospels so that there is a written testimony that will outlive us. And so that generations to come will be able to know the truth about Jesus Christ. But clearly, John's Gospel is quite a bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He really doesn't cover very many things that they they all cover. He doesn't cover the parables of Jesus. Any parables he tells are only found in the Gospel of John. But what John really zeroed in on were these essentials, where Jesus said, I am, and then what you would fill in the blank with was an essential of life, bread. One of the most essential things to even human civilization John was writing to an aging church. A church that was now 50 years old. Like we are here at Living Word Church. Celebrated now our 50th anniversary. Our 50th year in existence in a church. Church came into being in 1972. I understand really before that, but officially in 1972. Now it's 19... Now it's, now it's whatever. 2023. I think I got that right. John is writing when it seemed like the second coming of Jesus had been delayed and delayed. From their perspective, it had been delayed. How about from our perspective? How many of you got saved back in the 1970s or the 1980s and you thought, Jesus is coming next week. Jesus is coming again next month, right? Well, he, he may be coming next week. Maranatha, Jesus. He may be coming next month. But if not next week and not next month, we're going to have to deal with it, aren't we? We're going to have to deal And that's what the Apostle John was doing in remembering these words of Jesus Christ. He was dealing with a church that was getting older, with a church where the time was going by, where the decades were going clicking past, when when the second coming of Jesus seemed delayed, when the eyewitnesses of the resurrection were dying off. He was one of the last eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus left alive on the earth. The Apostle Paul indicates to us that they kept a roster. 
And they knew every time one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection died, they knew it. They could name them. Oh, Johnny, Johnny died. Billy died. Sammy died. Matilda died. Genevieve died. They knew the, the eyewitnesses and how many of them were alive and how many of them had died. And John was one of the last ones alive. And do you know what he had to say to the aging church? Do you know what he had to say to all the people who hadn't been so blessed to see the resurrection with their own eyes? He had this to say to them, don't ever forget what's essential. Don't get distracted by houses and cars and cell phones and clothes and lands and toys and trinkets and decorations. Remember, Jesus Christ is your bread. He is your light. He is your drink. Amen? He's the way. He's the truth. Religion is not your life. The building is not your life. All these essentials that Jesus uses to explain himself, that John recorded for us, have a certain thing in common. The bread, the drink, the light, the way. They all have something in common. And that is this. You don't need any of them once. You need all of them again and again and again. You need all of them ceaselessly. As the years go by, don't don't get the idea that you're all set. You drank once. You ate once. You ate the bread. You drank the drink. You felt the spirit. The spirit came in. It permeated your belly, so to speak. The spirit came out in service, flowed forth like a river. I experienced it once. I got connected to the vine. But the branch needs to take in life support from the trunk every day. Every day, again and again. So it's not a salvation message after all. It's a message to an aging church. It's a message that you've got to keep on taking the essentials in ceaselessly, again and again. Your life is in Jesus Christ. You need to take the Spirit in again and again. You need to be refilled with the Spirit. The Spirit has to once again permeate your belly. The Spirit once again has to flow forth from you in service. Jesus Christ has to once again give you courage, once again give you faith, once again give you determination. How's your connection? How are you doing? A branch will wither in moments without a good connection to the branch. Let me ask the singers to come forward. If anybody would like to pray, if anybody would like to seek the Lord and work on that connection and revalue and, and, and appreciate how Jesus Christ gives us all the essentials we need, everything we need. I invite you to come forward and pray, seek the Lord. God bless you, hallelujah. We'll wait for you.